Evening all. Uh, I'll be bringing you the second reading from the Bible tonight, which is obviously 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. It can be found on page 1197 of your... ...up here on the board. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality... Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife should to, to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this not as a concession, uh, sorry, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Thank you, Anthony. A warm welcome to all of you. My name's John, if we haven't met. Um, good to see you all here this evening and warm welcome to you if you're visiting us for the first time. And uh, let me extend a welcome to Syl Ruddle. Good to see you. Syl Ruddle's one of our mission partners. She serves in Africa and uh, do take the opportunity after the service to hear about the good work she's doing there. Uh, well, friends, why don't you take a moment, turn around, welcome each other, grab an outline. That will be helpful for tonight and I'll call you back shortly. Get your attention. Uh, there will be um, a short time for questions after the sermon, so you can text in your question to that number. It's not for you to prank in that, okay? So, so that, but we'll only have a short period, uh, time for that. We do have the Lord's Supper tonight, a time for us to celebrate and remember what Christ has done. Um, if you are visiting us, we are talking about sex tonight. Um, don't think that this is what we do every week. We speak about sex in the proportion in which the Bible teaches us about that. So that's the topic for tonight. But let's turn to God and pray and ask for his help as we consider this topic. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the creator of all heaven and earth and you created marriage and sex. And, and so help us tonight to understand that sex is good in your good design. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to talk about sex to Christians, amongst Christians, in church, to many it would seem, at best, a bit cringeworthy, a bit weird, or at worst, it's just rude, you shouldn't be talking about this stuff in church. And I suspect that this is how many Christians feel. 
And if not Christians, well, at least our society, when they look upon us Christians, they'll be thinking, you Christians, you don't know what's going on there. You are so uptight. You, are, you have a low view of sex. And in one sense, it's hard to blame them for that. It's hard to blame society for this misconception. You see, for a large slab of Christian history, there have been many warped views on sex. In the 4th century, Augustine taught that celibacy is superior to marriage and he said that sex was seen as a necessary evil to bring children into this world. He was a Christian theologian. Between the 5th and 7th century, it was believed that sexual intercourse was so impure that church leaders ought not to sleep with their wives before the Holy Communion, before the Lord's Supper. Now, somehow we are celebrating the Lord's Supper tonight, but I mean that's not a problem if a church celebrates the Lord's Supper once every couple of months. But anyway, listen to what the church taught back then. And an edict was issued and this was what was forbidden. Church ministers, church pastors, forbidden sex on Thursday because that's the day of the Lord's arrest. Forbidden to have sex on Friday because that was the day of his death. Forbidden to have sex on Saturday in honour of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And forbidden on Sunday in honour of the departed saints. Wednesday sometimes made it to the list as well, as did the 40-day fast period before Easter, before Pentecost and before Christmas. And, so, and also there were other feast days of the Apostles as well as the days of female impurity. And so in the end, a guy looked at that edict and he calculated, well, that only leaves 44 days a year for marital sex. And so you can understand the misconception that the society see uh, that Christians have. In the 12th century, Peter Lombard, a theologian and bishop of Paris, he said this, the Holy Spirit leaves the room when a married couple have sex even if they do it without passion. Strange. I mean, it's cringeworthy, isn't it? But that was much of Christian history. But you see, such a low view of sex can't be further from the truth. You see, God has an extremely high view of sex because God created sex. God knows more about sex than any of us. You see, God is for sex in the proper context. And that proper context is lifelong, exclusive marriage between one man and one woman. And so if God knows more about sex than any of us, if God created sex, then we ought to listen to what God has to teach about sex. Now when we talk about sex, it's very difficult to talk about sex independent of marriage. You see, it is within marriage that sex was created. And firstly, our first point is this. We need to see that sex is for marriage. Sex is for marriage. Sex is only right in marriage. Marriage is the only sexualised relationship there should be. You see, we have good friends and buddies, but they are not meant to be sexualised. When you are dating, they are still friends. That's not meant to be sexualised. Marriage is the only sexualised relationship there should be. And that's because sex was designed to serve the purposes of marriage. Anything sexual outside of marriage, any sexual stimulation or arousal, be it verbal or visual 
or virtue or up in the mind or physical, well, that is considered by God as sexually immoral. That is where we get the word pornography, porneia. It comes from the Greek word porneia. And we've considered this when we looked at 1 Corinthians 6 a couple of weeks ago. But today, in our study of 1 Corinthians 7, we will consider the goodness of sex and the purposes that sex serves within marriage. And so this is important for us Christians to remember and to know. You see, that sex is for marriage. That is the context. And so what this means in Christian thought, which is really so countercultural, is that rather than a personal need for sex, there is a marital need for sex. Do you get that distinction? Rather than a personal need for sex, there is a marital need for sex. Our society, it convinces us, it pushes, it advertises that we all need sex. It's a standard human need, just like eating and drinking, our physical appetite. And if you don't get any, then you're not really living. And so if you end up being like the 40-year-old virgin in that movie, you're somehow subhuman and you're laughable. But you see, that's not the biblical teaching. It is marriage that needs sex, not individuals. It is the marriage institution that needs sex. Now, this is not to deny that everyone, or at least most people, have sexual desires. But you see, sexual desire is different from sexual need. A need must be satisfied, like breathing air, breathing oxygen. That must be satisfied. But a desire can be controlled. A need must be satisfied, but a desire can be controlled and must be controlled when it comes to sex. You see, I desire all sorts of things, like having ice cream for breakfast, lunch and dinner. But I need to be self-controlled about that. I don't just give in to my desire, thinking that I need it to survive. In fact, if I do give in to my desire it would be unhealthy. And so it is with sex. Sex is a marital need, not a personal need. That is an important distinction to see. Sex is in marriage. Marriage needs it, not the person. You see, if if God designed people with a personal need for sex then and sex was something that everyone needed to survive, then that would justify sex outside of marriage because we all need it. And that would also mean that everyone must get married, but that is not the case at all in God's good design. It is marriage that needs sex to keep the marriage together. It is the divine superglue. We've been talking about this. Sex is the divine superglue given to establish and to hold lifelong, faithful, steadfast love. Sex creates the bond of marriage and sex also maintains the bond of marriage. And so, good sex is always married sex. Good sex is always married sex. The test for whether sex is good is whether it is married. One husband, one wife for life. And so one night stands can never be good sex. Sex outside of marriage in any context can never be good sex. When friends share their sexual exploits like it's the best thing ever, it can never be good sex. And not just that it's not good. According to God, it is wrong. You see, when society on one hand worships sex like it's the be-all and end-all, but yet on the other hand, society affirms that sleeping around is okay, that having multiple sexual partners before marriage or even during marriage is okay, what does that do to sex if that's what society thinks, if, if that's what society teaches? Well, what it does to sex is that it diminishes its value. 
it trivialises its, its importance and it cheapens its significance such that men or even, uh, and mainly women, are no longer persons to be known and loved but they become objects to be used. And so if sex is really special, then you don't share it around. Now many of you know that I drive a Toyota Corolla. And so if you were to ask me, can I borrow your car? I'll, I'll be fine, sure, just take it. You know, just don't crash it, but take it. But just say on a minister's salary, I get to purchase a Ferrari. And you were to ask me that same question, can I borrow your Ferrari? You say, I'll be a lot more hesitant because the Ferrari is a lot more special than a Corolla. I mean, I'm not even sure if I let Yvonne drive the Ferrari. No, that's not true. Well, we won't get one. But if we do, Yvonne, you, you can drive only in the driveway anyway. <laughs> but you see, you get the point. If sex is special, then it is to be reserved. And God teaches us that sex is extremely special and that's why it is reserved only for marriage. And so what we'll see is that sex is the servant of the marriage relationship. Sex is for marriage given to serve the purposes of marriage. So, sex is for marriage and what we'll see is that marriage is for many things. Sex is for marriage, marriage is for many things. Now, before I speak more about marriage and the purposes of sex in marriage, it's important that I spend some time now speaking about same-sex attraction or homosexuality. Now, what are we to think about that? We need to think clearly about this. It's important that we think rightly as Christians on this topic. You see, Christians are called all sorts of names because of the views we hold, because of what the Bible teaches. And so it's all the more reason that we know what we are to think and to say. And so two things I want to say about this. The first thing is our sexual orientation does not define our identity. Did you get that? Our sexual orientation does not define our identity. The identity of every single living human being is that they are made in the image of God, made as either a man or a woman. Now, of course, in our fallen world, our broken world, there, are, there is sometimes confusion. But the identity of every human being is that they are special, made in the image of God. And so what this means then, it's best to see people as just that, as people, a man or a woman, made in the image of God. And so rather than calling a person a, a homosexual or a gay person, they are rather people with same-sex attraction. And so for Christians, they are people made in the image of God, a man or a woman, who struggle with same-sex attraction. And so what we're doing here is we're distancing the identity of a person from their attraction, whether that's same-sex or opposite-sex. And if you think about it, it should make sense. You see, when you introduce yourself, when I introduce myself, I say, I'm John. And if I want to go further, I'll say, I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't go on to say, by the way, I'm heterosexual. You see, that's not my identity. And so our sexual orientation does not define our identity. That's the first thing. Secondly, following on from this, is that Christians can struggle with same-sex attraction and yet remain godly. Christians can and do struggle with same-sex attraction and they can still remain godly. You see, to have the attraction itself is it, not sin. It's only when you act upon it that it becomes sin. 
just as it is with those with opposite sex attraction, to have the attraction is not sin. When you act upon it outside of the marriage context in any way, well, that is sin. It applies to both those with same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction. And so it's worth knowing this because I suspect in a church group just like ours, this size, there may be people amongst us who are struggling with this, struggling with same-sex attraction. But we see them as Christians. And if they are Christians, their identity is that they are a child of our Heavenly Father, loved by God. That is who they are. But they struggle with this attraction. You see, that is important for us Christians to remember. And so what it means is that Christians who do struggle, they can still lead a godly life. In fact, there are ministers who have this attraction, who struggle with same-sex attraction, but lead a godly life because they don't act upon it. And so in sharing this, I want us Christians to be extra sensitive in the way we call people or talk about people or talk to people. We don't identify them by their sexual, uh, uh, um, sexual preferences. We identify them as people made in the image of God. And so we must love them all. Okay, back to marriage. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is for many things. Now, last week we looked at the definition of marriage, what marriage is. But what is marriage for? What are the purposes for which the institution of marriage was created for? Now, the Bible speaks of the overarching purpose of marriage is for God, for the service of God, which touched on this last week. God created human beings for his service to bring glory to him. And so, likewise, God created marriage to to be in the service of God and to bring glory to him. And so, if you've been to Christian weddings or if if you remember your own wedding, what is often read as the purposes of marriage? Well, depending on the tradition that is used, there are commonly three purposes, sometimes four. And these come from a biblical understanding of the purposes of marriage. Now, in our system, in our Presbyterian tradition, this is what we say. The first purpose is that it was given so that a husband and wife might always enjoy each other's companionship, help and support. So what's that purpose? Well, that purpose is the relationship, the relational good. Second, it was given so that family life might continue and that children might be brought up in the love and security of a stable and happy home. What's the purpose of marriage there? What is the good? Well, it's for procreation. And finally, it was given so that human society might be healthy and have a firm foundation. And it was also given for the proper expression of human sexuality. And what is that purpose? Well, it's for the public good. And so we'll be exploring three of these purposes and we'll see how sex serves those purposes within marriage. And so let's have a look at this. The first one. Sex is for marriage. Marriage, one of the purposes, is for procreation. The mandate from Genesis is to subdue the earth and to fill the earth. In Malachi, God speaks of desiring godly offspring. And so one of the purposes of marriage is to have children, to welcome children. And sex serves that very purpose, you see. Sex serves that purpose in marriage. It's natural. This is how children naturally come about. One man, one woman. 
And so, and so what we see here is that it is natural, it's the way children are entered into, brought into this world in the love and security of a stable home. Now, of course, this is not to say that all marriages must have children. Now, there are all sorts of different complications and medical issues that might mean for some that they cannot have children. They are no less marriages, but what is normal in God's design is that marriage is for children and sex serves that purpose within marriage. Secondly, there is the relational good, the relational good, the lifelong companionship of love and service and sex serves that purpose as well. And that's what we see 1 Corinthians 7, Paul elaborates on. He explains how sex serves that marriage relationship within marriage and in our passage he gives us several principles on sex within marriage. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7. We'll have a look at a few of these verses. He gives us a few principles. I want to point out two of them. Firstly, first principle of sex is that sex is a gift, not a right to claim. Sex is a gift, not a right. And so when anyone gets married, it is to take up responsibility to give himself, herself, her body, his body, his whole life to the husband or wife. It is to promise, to fulfil and to satisfy the husband or wife, emotionally, mentally, physically and of course sexually. It is to promise, I will fulfil my obligation to you. I will fulfil my debt to you. That is the language that Paul uses. And so what we see in verse 3 is just that. The husband should fulfil his marital duty. That is his obligation, his debt to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And you see there, sex then is a gift that is offered. It is not a right that is claimed. It's not something that is selfishly claimed and demanded. Now, I'm not sure about you, but that should turn the way our world thinks about sex upside down. You see, when sex is demanded, when it becomes a personal right, that's when sexual abuse happens. And so that is also to miss the point of the purpose of sex, which is to serve the relationship, which is to build the relationship. Remembering in Genesis, in our first reading, when a man and woman, they get married, they leave their parents and they cleave to one another. The word cleave is the same word used for an incurable disease that is stuck on you and it stays stuck on you. You can't get rid of it. And so a husband and wife, when they cleave to one another, they are stuck. They're not meant to separate. And so sex achieves that purpose in bonding husband and wife together for life. And so in sex, there is this mutual concern for each other, a mutual responsibility to each other. And that's what we see in verse 4. Have a look. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. You see, this this idea would have been so profound in the first century for people to hear. You see, in Roman world, in the Roman world, in their thinking, sex was unilateral. It was for the benefit and privilege of the husband, but it was the duty of the wife. And so Paul turns that on its head. Here Paul says it is as much the duty of the husband and the privilege of the wife. So this first principle Paul gives us, sex is a gift to be given, not a right to be claimed. Secondly, because sex is integral to the marriage relationship, 
His second principle in this passage is that it is to be frequent and regular and normal for married couples. Abstinence within marriage is abnormal. Now, of course, for married couples, there will be times and seasons of life where, where it will be difficult, where it will be a struggle. There could be medical reasons for some couples and there could be psychological reasons for some, some couples. The arrival of babies and children and tightness, they all play a factor. And when, when couples get older, there are struggles there too. They are legitimate, but what is normal is that sex is meant to be frequent. And so when sex is not frequent or when sex is not regular, then that might indicate some underlying difficulty or struggle that needs to be addressed, needs to be resolved, whether it's a relationship issue, whether it's a psychological thing or whether it's a medical thing. And so for, met, uh, for married couples, uh, as a pastor, as a minister, as your pastor, for married couples here, if it is a struggle, if there are some difficulties, then you need to at least talk to one another about it. You can't just leave it. You have to talk about it to one another. And then you can also seek the help of others. There is help available. You can speak to Chris or myself or Yvonne. We are here to help you for married couples. It's an issue that needs to be talked about. Of course, talk to any other Christian you trust. The ongoing difficulty and struggle with sex within marriage will be a problem and you want to work towards resolving that. A good book I can suggest if you do find sex within marriage a struggle is this book, The Best Sex for Life for Married Couples by Patricia Wirakuns, is a sexologist, worth reading. So here in this passage, what Paul now goes on to say is that he uses, he uses very strong language to keep sex regular. He uses the word you are not to defraud one another, you're not to deprive your spouse of sex. You have an obligation to give this gift and we see this in verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time. And so what that suggests is that sex should be the normal part of marriage. And what you also see here is that you don't negotiate towards sex but you negotiate away from sex. You see that? Sex should be such a normal part that you don't need to negotiate towards sex, but you negotiate away from sex. And Paul gives that exception here. What is that exception? Maybe, perhaps, you want to go along to a prayer meeting. You want to spend some time in prayer. He says this, verse 5, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And Paul goes on to say, I say this as a concession, not as a command. And so abstinence is a concession. It should not be a habit. And so what this means then is that husband and wife are to be sensitive to the needs of the marriage, to keep the marriage strong. It's not a personal need. It's a marital need. And so if you are married, then you can't be depriving one another. In fact, sex, in, in God's view, it's such a high view. God places a high view on sex. It's almost like a spiritual thing. It is considered ministry towards God as you give, as you serve your husband or your wife. And so sex here creates the bond of marriage and it also maintains the bond of marriage. 
sex serves the relational purpose of marriage. And finally, there is also the public good of marriage, given so that human society might be healthy and have a firm foundation. You see, marriage allows for the proper expression of human sexuality and this serves a public good. It is good for society when sex is only in marriage and only married couple have sex. You see, after the fall, after the fall of Adam and Eve, sexual immorality in all its forms is a serious problem for this broken world. Lust is powerful. It is seductive. There's no denying that. But it is also damaging and destructive to society and the public good. You see, when society behaves promiscuously and engages in sexual immorality, sex before marriage or adultery or pornography, whatever it might be, it is not only bad for those involved, it is actually bad for society as a whole. It destroys the social fabric of society. You see, adultery breaks up families. Pornography, which rewires the brain, that mucks up marriages or future marriages. Prostitution objectifies women. And so it's delusional to think that sexual immorality has no consequences. And so that's why marriage is for the public good. It is God's wonderful solution to sexual immorality because in marriage, sex finds its proper place. And that's why Paul encourages sex within marriage in our passage. He says you should. You should because it combats sexual immorality. Have a look. We see this in verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now that verse is not there saying that if you want sex, go find a husband or a wife. It is talking to those who are already married. And so if you're already married, then you must have sex with your husband or wife. And he says this again in in, in verse 5, the problem of sexual immorality. He says, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so sex is for marriage. Marriage is for many things. Sex serves each of those purposes within marriage. Sex serves the purpose of procreation, having children. Sex serves the purpose of building a strong marriage, a strong relationship. And sex serves the purpose of the public good of marriage. And so what this says then is that sex is not the master. Sex is the servant of the marriage relationship. Sex is not to be worshipped. And that's exactly what our society has done. Sex is worshipped like it's the ultimate human experience. But then what happens is that society has become enslaved by sex. When it is worshipped, they become enslaved by it. And, and we see this. We know it by the next ad. But sex is the servant. It is to serve the purposes of the marriage. And so if anything, if you think about this, God has a very high view of sex. A very high, higher than our view, higher than our world's view. And so should Christians. It's very important. It's very precious. And so we need to affirm that sex is good. God's good gift for creation within marriage. And we must also remember that we as individuals don't exist for sex. That is delusional. That is to be deceived. We don't exist for sex. 
but sex exists for marriage because one day sex and marriage will be superseded by something far greater in heaven. And so today we've considered this important and sensitive topic. For us who are Christians, we must not be ashamed in talking about sex because if we don't talk about it, in its proper context, then how will anyone know, how will this world know that sex is in fact good and best in marriage, in God's good design? And my other thing to say to you is that we must also talk about this, not just generally, but on a personal level. And in some way, hold each other accountable that we don't fall into temptation. I've been asked by a, a, a former minister of mine, and a trusted Christian friend, how is your sex life? Now, you must think, how personal is that? How can you talk about that? But you see, they were asking that from a genuine concern for our marriage. Sex is so important to marriage, and so if there's a problem with the sex life, there may be a problem with the marriage. And so when I meet up with guys myself, I would often ask them, how is your personal life going? How are you going in terms of godliness and purity? Is something we need to all do to keep each other pure, to keep each other accountable, but to uphold what sex is, how good it is within marriage. And so, hopefully, looking at this topic today and seeing that sex is good in God's good design, that we see that sex is for marriage and for marriage alone. Marriage is for many things it's for procreation, for the relationship, for the public good. And sex serves each of those purposes within marriage. And so let us not forget how good it is, but only in God's good design. Uh, We will have time for questions, but let's pray first. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good teaching, for how you have established this world, for how you have embedded into the moral framework of this world your good purposes of sex and marriage. And so help us Christians to uphold it, to keep marriage as important, to see the institution as the only place in which sex is to be um, for. And so we pray, Lord, that you keep us, help us to be pure in our own thinking, but also help us to see your good promises that even if we have failed sexually, we who believe in Jesus have been cleansed and sanctified and justified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Dan's going to ask... We'll have only two questions tonight. Yes, thanks for sending through all your questions. And, um, yeah, this is a short question time this week, but there'll be future opportunities uh, in coming weeks to ask more questions as well. So we'll just deal with two questions now, uh, and they're going to come up on the screen. Okay, so first question, if there is... To be no sexual stimulation or arousal outside of marriage, what about sexual dreams? Are they displeasing to God? Mm. Yeah. Well, sexual dreams, you can't really help, help it, but what I was referring to is being active in choosing, deciding to be aroused sexually, to arouse someone else sexually, be it verbally or visually or, or virtually or physically. So where you are active, where you are conscious, where you know what you're doing. So that is wrong. Well, in, in terms of dreams, what, what can you do? You can't really help yourself, right? But, yep. Cool. Thanks for that. And second question. 
How do you conclude that the Bible says that sex is a gift? Uh, given the language of verses 3 to 4 uh, doesn't seem to show sex as a gift, it seems to describe it as a duty uh, belonging to a spouse. Yeah. So, so, good question. So, we get the idea from what Paul teaches in terms of the principle. Verse is an obligation to the other, that's, that's you giving yourself for the other, and in a sense it's summed up in your marriage vows, I give my life to you, I give my body to you, so that is a gift. So though the word is not used, the principle is there. Yeah. So that is an important way to understand sex. It is a gift, not a right, and that transforms how this world thinks about sex. Continue to talk about all these questions. We need to be Christian thinkers, think about after God's thoughts, after him. So continue these discussions and questions. Thanks, Dan. That's great.